Please turn with me this morning to the book of Numbers, Numbers 21. I'm going to read from Numbers 21, and then we're going to read from John 3, and then 1 Corinthians 10, a few passages I'd like for us to open up, but let's ask the Lord for his help. Our Father, as we sang this morning, we are people bound for the promised land. That which is far greater than the rest that your people received, of which we will read this morning, an eternal rest, one that you've secured, Lord Jesus, and we rejoice in that because apart from you, we are utterly hopeless. And as such a people bound for that rest because of your great salvation, we desperately need you along the way in the journey we face. We need you, Holy Spirit, to open your word to us, to refresh us, to strengthen us, to remind us of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. Please do this this morning. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord obeyed the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
Turn with me now to John 3. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, in the account where Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, and Nicodemus misunderstands, and Jesus explains further, but he still doesn't quite get it when he talks about being born of the Spirit. And we pick up in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 10. Beginning in verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed under the sea, or through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the word of God.
people were on their way to the promised land, making their way through the wilderness, departing on from Mount Sinai. The book of Numbers tells us about this journey. We get the the title from the numbering that God ordered of the people, but originally in Hebrew, the title of the book was simply In the Desert to describe their wanderings in the desert. And at first, everything seemed to be going well. They were following the Lord, but we get to about chapter 11 and things start to go astray and the people begin to complain about Moses, about the lack of water and food. And in their unbelief, they turn away from the Lord and God deals with them. And at one point in the story, they're close to the promised land, and he says, take one man of each of the 12 tribes of Israel and send them up into the land I'm going to give you. Go check it out. Scouting report of sorts. Tell us about the land and the people and the towns that they dwell in. Tell us about the soil. Bring back some of the fruit. And they go. And they come back. It just happened to be grape harvest time. And two men are carrying such a large cluster of grapes. They had it on a pole in between their shoulders. And they come back and they give a report. It is, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. But people there are strong, powerful, big cities with walls around them. And Caleb sees what's going on here. And he says, no, listen, we can go up and take this land. Oh, no. The other spies say, apart from Joshua, of course, those people, they're stronger than we are. The great cities and the land, it, it, now all of a sudden they have a negative view of the land. It devours its inhabitants. We can't do this. And, and then there are these Nephilim there. They're so huge. We were like little tiny grasshoppers in front of them, and, and they concluded the same about us. We can't do this. They gave a bad report. And then the bad report started to spread among the people, and they all started to cry out. Why, why haven't we died in Egypt or in this wilderness? And then it gets worse. Why has the Lord brought us up here to die by the sword? We should just go back to Egypt. 
Let's choose a leader to lead us back there. Joshua and Caleb, they cry out to the people, no, listen, we can do this. If the Lord is with us, we can go up and take this people. The Lord has promised it. And they say something very crucial. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Good speech. The response of the people. Let's stone them. God had enough. Moses, step aside. How long will these people test me? I'm just going to kill all of them. No, Lord, don't kill them. The people, people will hear, you know, that you, you brought us out of Egypt, and people will hear, and they'll say, the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised. Forgive them, Lord. You're slow to anger and compassionate, showing mercy. Forgive them. I will forgive them, but they're going to die in the wilderness. They're going to wander for 40 years. Only Joshua and Caleb of this generation are going to make it into the land. They rebelled against him. Forgiveness was granted. The account we read in Numbers 21, the people rebel against him in a manner similar later on in the story. They put the Lord to the test in their unbelief. As we do, my brothers and sisters, And in our grumbling and disputing and unbelief and complaints, we put him to the test. We rebel against him. What is the hope? Same hope that the Israelites had. To look to Jesus Christ. Because they were, we, we read it in 1 Corinthians 10. They were put, they then in the wilderness were putting Jesus to the test. They drank of him, they ate of him. They saw him afar off, way less than what we know and have had revealed to us. But they saw him. And when they put God to the test, they put the Savior to the test, who was their hope in the midst of their rebellion. And so my challenge this morning to all of us is, is simply this, that in our testing of the Lord who saves us, in our rebellion against him, let us learn more and more to look to Jesus Christ as our hope. In this book of Numbers that I told you about was originally titled In the Desert, we have this account, not unlike some of the others we read in here, but a, a very unique one in Numbers 21. People you know, there's the summary kind of the people are speaking against Moses, God's appointed leader in their life. And as a result, 
against God, which does not mean that it's wrong ever to question those who are in authority over us, but they often go together and they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We look at this. You know, life in Egypt wasn't so great, was it? But the, this isn't the first time you, you have this kind of talk. They look back and, you know, life wasn't so bad there. We had cucumbers and leeks and onions, and we could eat to our fill. There's no food. No water. Forgotten the Lord had delivered them from the bondage that they were experiencing. And we loathe this worthless food, this stinking manna. Tired of this manna day after day after day after day. And the Lord sends snakes. to the grumblers and they bite them. Venomous snakes. People are dying. Without a doubt there is a connection of what's going on here with that promise. You remember that promise all the way back in Genesis 3 after the fall? When God says to Satan in the form of a serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. The very striking of the heel and that seed. Now, he, we read in that passage, would lead to the defeat of Satan. And so, You'll hear people refer to Jesus as the head crusher. He is the ultimate head crusher. And these people are bitten by snakes only to find at the judgment of God, yes, but because of their sin, only to find that there is a promise. There is deliverance. There is salvation to those who would turn away from their sin and look to the Lord. And the people, they come to Moses and they say, we, we've sinned. They see it. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord. He may take away the serpent. So the Lord, Moses prayed. And Moses said, and, you know, at first glance, I don't know about you, I have, I'm sort of uncomfortable with this remedy. Because it seems at first glance to smack of idolatry, create an idol, almost. When I hear the Lord say to Moses, make a, a fiery serpent of bronze and put it on a pole and lift it up, and everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it or sees it, shall live. 
So Moses does this and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Makes me a little uncomfortable. Why didn't he say, tell the people to cry out to me and plead for forgiveness? I'll heal them. Because there was something symbolic going on here. And it wasn't the bronze serpent that led to the people's healing. It was the one who in his promise brought healing by them looking upon it. We know this very clearly because later on, King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 would destroy this because the people had turned it into an idol. They called it Nehushtan. Basically translated that, that bronze thingy. That snake thing. They were to look to the Lord. And Jesus makes very clear in John 3, what this is all about. Because just as that serpent was put on a pole, Jesus Christ would be lifted up on the cross to die for sinners, for healing of sinners. We can be guilty of idolatry. You know, I, it's not wrong to have a cross hanging in a church or to have an image on a screen of a cross or, you know, we could talk about religious jewelry so long as that serves simply as a reminder of the, the one who alone can save us and we don't become superstitious about this thing on the wall back here or what's around my neck which can all easily happen, all too easily happen. Or even people can turn belief into Christ. They can refashion Christ in a way that, oh, oh we just uh, uh, look at him and live and yet forget that the Lord, when he healed this people, didn't somehow say, okay, now, Israelites, just live as you want. You're healed now. No more problems. We call that in reform circles easy believism. But is it the case when Jesus tells us about the significance of what's going on here, pointing to him that all we have to do is look and live? Is it that simple? Did that old gospel hymn get it right? Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. Tis recorded in his word. Hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. Is that right? Yes. Here's our hope. We just need to look upon Jesus Christ. There's the hope for the rebel sinners. We all are.
a simple faith that even a young child can express. And we have forgiveness. But yet, this life that he gives is one in which he expects us to show our faithfulness to him. We are called not to put him to the test. That's what Paul's on about in 1 Corinthians 10, as he looks back to this time when people put God to the test and they were destroyed by serpents. He said, these things are written for your example, that you don't do the same thing. That you're not like those grumblers and disputers in the wilderness. But we do, don't we? We struggle with that. And our hope is Jesus Christ. We struggle with it in the home, don't we? Dad comes home from work after a long day and plops his feet up on the recliner, turns on the TV. Been a rough day. Mom's been working all day, too. Maybe she had a job outside the home. Maybe she was just at home working hard with the kids and everything else that goes on, and he's sort of forgotten about her, and she says, sure would be nice if somebody would help me with the chores around here. And then he says, you have no idea what my job is like, honey. And pretty soon their grumbling and complaining leads to a dispute between the two of them. And they're grumbling about one another and arguing with one another, failing to see that ultimately they're testing the Lord. It can happen in the workplace when others start to complain about the boss. And this guy needs to calm down. I am sick and tired of him. He doesn't see anything positive we do, but every little thing we do wrong, he jumps all over us. And you, the professing believer, everybody knows you make a profession. If they say, yeah, that guy just needs to take a chill pill. And you begin to join in. And it happens in the circumstances we face in life. Alarm goes off. Oh, man. Can't believe I have to get up now. Look out the window. It's snowing again. I am sick and tired of snow. We get quite a bit in Johnstown. I don't know what it's like here. You'll have to fill me in later. Not that I've ever said something like that. <laughs> it's almost like we attribute the weather to Mother Nature that we know doesn't exist and forget. I'm complaining against God. On the way here today, we took a different route and uh, have it punched into my phone and the GPS 
and my phone starts to act all haywire. Stupid phone. And then I became irritated with my wife. Now, ultimately, I'm grumbling against God. Look at your life and see how easily these things arise. May the Lord graciously deliver us from these things. And maybe you're here thinking, well, I really, you know, I, I really don't struggle with that. Grumbling and disputing, complaining against God. I'd love to hear your secret, or maybe you're sort of uh, deluded about how great things are. Maybe you ought to ask others whether that's the case. But even if it is, oh, praise the Lord, but, you know, Paul, Paul still hits you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, let him who thinks he stands and doesn't have a problem with testing the Lord, let him who thinks he stands Take heed, lest he fall. Story about a man who went over the Niagara Falls. I'll end with this. In 1911, his name was Bobby Leach. First man to go over the falls in a steel barrel. Notice how I emphasize that, ladies. There was a lady who beat him to it, Annie Taylor. And he decided, well, if Annie Taylor can do it, I'm going to do it. And he gets in the barrel. He goes over the falls. He survives, breaks two kneecaps along the way. But he's okay, and he travels around the country, becomes famous, famous stunt guy. He worked for Barnum and Bailey Circus. And he went around sharing his story with everybody. You know how he died 15 years later? In New Zealand, he slipped on an orange peel, broke his leg, infection set in to the point of gangrene, had his leg amputated, and he died. Great stunt man. Let him who thinks he stands, praise the Lord if you do, in these things, take heed, lest he fall. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the fact that all, all we have to do is, is to look and live. All we have to do, Lord Jesus, is have simple faith in you to believe upon you for eternal life. Thank you for this great salvation. Thank you for this abundant life that we enjoy now as a foretaste of the life to come. May we learn from the Israelites who put you to the test. May we strive, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, knowing that the rest that Joshua gave was not the ultimate rest, but the one to come is. Let us strive to enter that rest. As we come to this table, to be reminded that all we have to do is look and live. And may this be nourishment for our souls as we come. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior.